0: a couple of announcements before we begin. If you've not already done so, uh, please remember to turn in your confidentiality forms. It should be the green uh, sheets that I see some of you holding right now. So please get those turned into Bowware as soon as you can yet today. Uh, take a peek at ICON. There are a couple of things in ICON you might want to take a look at. There is the breaking video. There's also a PE skills uh, review video you might want to take a look at. Also, there's a resource called the uh, Curriculum Database. So if you want to review some lecture material that you may have had before in previous classes, um, there's a link um, on the front page on the content, or on the home page as well as on the content page. And it will give a description of what the Curriculum Database can do for you. So please take a look at that. Got a little bit of trivia for you about the great state of New York. New York was the first state to require license plates on cars, and now for Minnesota. Minnesota. The first open-heart surgery in the United States was done at University of Minnesota, and now you know. It's, it's all yours.
1: Okay, okay. you can hear me now. Alright, so let's get started. This is an important lecture. Probably everybody thinks their lecture is the most important, but I'm right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mine is the most important. We have a birthday today.
2: No Yeah. Apparently, uh twenty fourth birthday,
1: Uh, birthday. could you please? That'll teach (laughs) it. Anyway, all right. So So, depression and anxiety. Um, This is the first part of your second year, right? Congratulations. This is going to be a terrific year. This is one of the best years ever. Okay, so let's look at um, my optimism, and enthusiasm. We're going to talk about depression. Um, But really, depression is common, depression is treatable, and depression is life threatening. Okay? So you put all that together, it's very important to be able to recognize depression, it's very important to anticipate depression, it's very important to be able to talk freely about depression without the stigma. When I was in medical school, I remember only a couple of lectures, and one of the lectures that I remember is when, okay, I can't remember who said the lecture, but I remember what he said. And um, there's just a few moments, you know, that you remember, and and I call them fist-banging moments, And this is when the lecture bangs go fist, I'm quoting this this is really, really important, do not forget this. Alright, this is a fist-banging moment, alright, people that have clinical depression um, have high mortality, high morbidity, suicide rate is high, alright, so I really want you to be able to anticipate and be able to diagnose depression. By the way, the fist-banging moment that I had wasn't about depression, or that that gentleman taught us during, back in 1991. His fist moment was don't ever, <laughs> don't ever um, ignore a quiet, positive stool. <laughs> and one would think that that's kind of a weird thing to remember your whole term, but I think really that that's true, because what do we know about colon cancer? It's common, it's treatable, and it's life-threatening, okay? So, remember that, too, <laughs> Okay, um, I wonder if we could get the lights just a little bit dimmer. Throughout this lecture, I'm just, I just threw up some, you know, the sort, sort of common uh, theme here. I threw up some people that, I guess they're sort of from my generation, so I'm not sure if you really know who is this. And yeah. Okay. So let's start out with a case example. This is, our it. Right. This, is, this is our first case example. This is a real life example. This is a 73-year-old woman who presents to her family physician with complaints of feeling uncomfortably full after eating for the last several months. Not related to the types of meals that she eats, so it's not like after she eats a fatty meal or, after she eats, or the time of day she eats or anything like that. A review of the chart reveals that she has lost 30 pounds since the last 8 months ago for her routine annual exam. Now that's your first red flag, right? I mean this is, not a, this is a big problem, 30 pounds in 8 months. So what else do we you know about her? Her past medical history is unremarkable. She's got, other than a 60-pack year of, of being a smoker, she's got no prior surgeries, no active medical problems, and she has mild arthritis pain. <coughs> so now your red flag just got like flashing lights on your brain no, you know you no past medical history except for now you know that she's been a long-term smoker. So what are you thinking? Some kind of cancer probably, right? Maybe, at least it should be high in a differential. In terms of medication, she takes an aspirin every day because her neighbor told her that she should. She has no known drug allergies in terms of her social history. Her husband died 20 years ago of lung cancer. Notably the her five kids have grown, doing well, moved away, but they have a lot of contact. They're a real tight family. She's got six grandchildren and she's very active in her community. In her family history, she has cancer, hypertension, and stroke. Right. So, as I'm going through this, I'm thinking to myself, okay, she's got primarily GI complaints, but she's a long term smoker, she's got cancer in her family history. I don't know what's going on, but I think there is something. Physical exams are remarkable. Alright, so let's do some labs. See if you see your screening labs are also unremarkable <coughs> you say well I guess if it's a GI problem let's start imaging for GI system. so doing that you get you see this scan that has delayed emptying of the gallbladder so they take it out then you talk to the surgeon afterwards and he says you know I, I kind of looked okay too <coughs> bad. So clinically, you're just not in a very comfortable spot right now because you haven't really found any clear medical etiology for this lady who's having fullness after eating and a giant weight loss in the last year. Okay, so, you, so you're not done yet. So have to start. Thinking talk to the family and they say you know what mom just has not been herself she wasn't herself at Thanksgiving we took our annual holiday trip and she was irritable, difficult to please which so is not like her at all so we started an SSRI by 4 weeks she had significant improvement by <coughs> right, 10 weeks she's back to full strength okay so remember this lady came in 73 years old Not very many medical problems, history of smoking, giant weight loss. Medical depression, right? Just keep it in the back of your mind. Super boring. So depression (coughs) is often, often not the chief complaint for the visit to the physician. Not recognizing the present symptoms results in under-treatment and this is both in people who are coming in for treatment and for those of us who are trying to help folks that have these symptoms. The stigma related to having a psychiatric condition reduces the likelihood that depressive symptoms are reported. <coughs> this just didn't really come up in the, in the history of present illness until everything else was excluded and we thought well, what could it possibly be? What's going on? And depression responds well to treatment. So this is really a win-win situation. That's a big hint. <laughs> I should have brought a little prize. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. So, how do you recognize clinical depression? Four, or sorry, five or more of the following symptoms have been present during the same two-week period and represent a change from previous, previous functioning. Now, one of those five has to be a depressed mood <coughs> or a loss of interest or in pleasure. So you can't have all of this other stuff but feel real good, you know, in terms of your energy and optimism about the day. So depressed mood, loss of interest or pleasure in activities, weight change, appetite change. Sleeping too much or sleeping not very much, but change in your sleep pattern. Oftentimes that you can go to sleep okay, but you wake up early and you can't get back to sleep. They call that terminal anxiety. Cycle water agitation or retardation, so that means that you're just just restless. Cycle water agitation would be that you're just restless, can't get comfortable, piecing around, always feel like a little bit of angst. Or retardation is that you 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 just sit there and you don't do it. If you go and talk to someone that has clinical depression, oftentimes when you leave the room, you'll feel like you don't have much energy Because they're just, <coughs> they're so glad. You know, they just don't have much inflection in their voice until they don't feel good. Feelings of worthlessness or guilt, guilt about things that they shouldn't feel guilty for, haven't felt guilty for in the past, diminished ability to concentrate, feeling indecisive and easily overwhelmed. Recurrent thoughts of death or suicidal ideation. So this is an important part. Right? Part of the illness, part of the brain dysfunction, is that you, that people can become very morbid and preoccupied with thoughts of death, and that can lead to suicidal ideation. Once the depression is adequately treated, those morbid thoughts go right? away. So that's why, if you suspect that someone that you're seeing in the clinic, a family member or a friend or whomever, doesn't really matter, is having a clinical depression, it's a good idea to say, you know what, seems like things that you're feeling really bad about things have you ever thought that maybe be better if you weren't around at all. I don't think you're going to give anybody the idea of committing suicide. Uh, oftentimes it's a relief, looking for you to say, "Is that, is that going through your mind?" And as a physician, that's one of your jobs is to ask some of those uncomfortable questions. would may be maybe other people are hesitant to ask. Okay. Oh I gave away. So clinical depression, the mnemonic, the mnemonic that I was taught, that I kind of immediately wanted to forget because I thought I'll never remember that. The e caps. I don't know, but now it's in my mind, and I guess I'll just pass it on to another generation of people. So (laughs) SIG-E caps for clinical depression in the mind. So depressed mood plus four or more of the following: sleep change, interest is poor, feeling guilty, energy low, concentration poor, appetite or weight change, psychomotor agitation or retardation, and suicidal. Okay. So sticky cats. So evaluate depression the same way as any other chief complaint. It may manifest as fatigue, listlessness, weight change, vague, somatic complaints. And just go about this the same way as you would go about chest pain or any of the other. Chief uh, the points that people have, why did it start, how frequent, precipitant, what makes it better, what makes it worse, any associated symptoms. There are many medical conditions that cause or mimic depression and medications can also be the same. These are reversible. <laughs>
2: <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: Alright, medical and
1: psychiatric and systems. pay particular attention to anxiety, substance use. Reality, look for a, uh, depression, uh, has runs in families, so look for a genetic component. Oftentimes, people will self medicate their depression with drugs, illicit drugs, or alcohol abuse. abuse um, and you want to just do your usual routine uh, screening after your physical exam, right, as indicated.
2: So,
1: Okay. Make sure to evaluate for suicidality in all the presentations. One something, one sentence, the only slide on the sentence, and then giant letters, this would be important. (laughs) We're not moving on until I hear open. Here's another one that I guess (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So now we've We've gone through a case history of depression. We've talked about how to diagnose clinical depression, and this is a diagnosis of exclusion. Right? You want to rule out medical conditions that can mimic clinical depression. So there's a giant differential diagnosis list here um, of things that people can have that present as clinical. So metabolic disorders, dementia, medications, anything that's going on in the brain, you know, so, vitamin deficiency syndromes. Now these are really fun to pick up. So if someone comes in, one oftentimes one of the more common things you can see is that a woman comes in, middle-aged no woman, fatigued, listless, sleeping too much, gaining weight, looks and probably would meet many of the criteria now for clinical depression. What she's got is hypothyroidism, lupus, toxin exposures. So run through your differential diagnosis before you decide on the diagnosis of clinical depression. Common laboratory workup really just reflects the things that you might be suspicious for. In your differential diagnosis. Princess, wait. Right? Okay. Who is at risk for clinical depression? 10% lifetime prevalence risk. Depression is common. Depression is treatable. Depression is life threatening. Family history. Relative families females have twice the risk of developing a clinical depression so just beware of these things as you're thinking about risk the chances chronic medical conditions, diabetes, cancer, heart disease are at risk for developing clinical depression and those that have a chronic medical illness with an untreated clinical depression on top of that have worse outcomes alright lots of uh, evidence in the literature to support that and coronary artery disease and people that have MIs, diabetes, cancer, outcomes are better. Clinical depression is recognized and treated. Depression, anxiety, and substance abuse tend to go together. So when you're considering depression, ask about anxiety, ask about substance abuse. Risk factors for suicide are people that have a chronic medical illness, people that have a pre-existing psychiatric condition Are abusing drugs and alcohol. So please make sure that you ask about those things. 60 minutes. Okay, so take home points: clinical depression. Clinical depression is common, unrecognized, and treatable. When you're thinking about the criteria for depression, for diagnosis, big E-caps. Medical problems and medication should be ruled out as potential causes for depression symptoms. And what are three group what three, three groups of people that you anticipate might be at higher risk for clinical depression? Yeah. Females, my mm-hmm. medical substance abuse problems, okay question about, questions about chief compliance, yes? What do you do to deal with the stigma and compliance the treatment? So what the question is what do you do to deal, to deal with the stigma and compliance with treatment? So someone suspects or their physician has now told them that they have a clinical depression but they don't want to get treatment for it and they don't want to tell anybody they have it and how to deal with that. That's a great question. One um, of the a friend of mine who's a family practice doctor, and those are the people, by the way, that mostly treat clinical depression <coughs> because there's a psychiatry shortage, and a lot of people are comfortable to see their primary care doctor but not comfortable to go see a psychiatrist. She has in her file for a stack of pet, of PET scans, and she shows the evidence that clinical depression is a medical illness that the brain is working right, that there's worsened uptake in the frontal lobes in various parts of the brain prior to treatment and that after treatment you can see that those have normalized. So I think education that this is a medical illness and that a character flaw is important. Um, and that's, I, I think that's primarily it. I think that humans kind of fear what we don't understand and I think if you, information is critical and I think that kind of information to her and to her family is what's the most helpful Um, A lot of people then view antidepressants just as an aside they may be willing to take a medication and not willing to see a therapist reverse. See a therapist that don't really like medication. Either, either route is fine. Um, both are effective in treating the clinical depression unless the, the depression is severe in which case uh, therapy isn't effective because you literally can't really digest what you're talking about well enough for it to work. A lot of people once they take, start taking an antidepressant medication start feeling better at around three weeks, two or three weeks until taking the medication which causes relapse. So you need to let people know that this is the sort of thing where when you have your first episode of clinical depression, that you should stay on the medication for at least eight to 12 months to avoid a risk of relapse. You'll get all of this later on. But I think just that recognition that people aren't going to want to admit it is just important. You just put it right out there in the open. Just like all the other things to with people about a little bit uh, sensitive. Any
2: other questions? In your sense, what's the average time course of therapy both drug or drug therapy?
1: So what's the average time course for both drug therapy and for um, talk therapy? Yeah. Okay. Um, in general, as I said, for your first First, a person's first episode of clinical depression, we recommend eight to 12 months of medication treatment before you consider discontinuing the medication. At that point, you have an idea of what you feel like when you are clinically depressed. So you can discuss with the patient what those early warning signs are and kind of try to nip things in the bud if you're going to restart a medication the next time around. Most people do have a second episode of clinical depression um, in terms of therapy that varies widely depending on what issues are there. Um, many insurance companies will approve a fixed number <coughs> of patients, and then beyond that you have to sort of petition and beg for more. <laughs> um, but I think the typical insurance, what I, my experience has been when I refer people for therapy um, is that they they typically will approve uh, eight or ten visits in the next calendar year something like that but I think it kind of depends on the person Average age of onset for clinical depression anybody want to take a shot at that? you're at it all right young adulthood But can it happen? can happen time in your lifespan. Look at this: <coughs> who's seventy-three years old and has never had an episode of clinical depression in her life. Okay. So don't think because someone's a, you know, an elderly person that they can't have their first episode of clinical depression. Is there a criteria for evaluating suicidality versus passing thoughts? Is there a criteria for evaluating suicidality versus passing thoughts? I'm not really sure what you mean by criteria, but um, we know risk factors for suicidality. Um, we know protective factors for people who are contemplating suicide. You know, children is one of them, family support is So I don't know that there's. Um how do you know How would you say someone is, this person is suicidal for rather than just. They <coughs> yeah, so you, so that's a very, that's a hard thing. How do you decide someone How do you predict who who's going to attempt suicide or who's just having a passing yeah. thought? That's difficult. I mean, you have to sit and talk and visit with them about. Do you have a plan? What's your plan? Would you ever carry through with that? I mean, there's not really a good way to you know score it so you can just sleep better at night knowing that you didn't miss someone. We will, will have at least one lecture on evaluating the suicidal patient, where we'll get into detail about how you do a good evaluation for that. So, any other questions? Okay. Anxiety disorders. Now, remember that this, these two complaint lectures are just sort of just you know a view from 10,000 feet up. We're not trying to get into a lot of detail just trying to give you sort of a sense of the, the big picture here. When people think anxiety, a lot of the time, a lot of the anxiety disorders that are in the DSM-IV, the diagnostic and statistical manual, um, they're, they're pretty discrete entities. But one thing that's pretty common when people will come to you with you with kind of anxiety, they'll come in and they're saying, I'm having a panic attack. So I thought we ought to talk a little bit about what a typical what a panic attack is. Again, we need to be looking at medical conditions that mimic or cause symptoms of anxiety and make sure that they get uh, addressed and treated, and then conditions associated with an anxiety disorder. So the question comes up, and it's a good question, is at what point is anxiety pathological? At what point do you quote label quote someone with an anxiety disorder? All of us get anxious about various things, and that's helpful. So there's adaptive anxiety, which has to do with the fight or flight response, which um, keeps you alive. If you run into some of these, um, you know, snake spares, you're. I mean, there's just. This is a helpful response, but it's not helpful is when this is not a life-threatening situation, and you're misinterpreting it as such, and your body is reacting to it as such. And because of that, you avoid that situation and it becomes impairing to you, right? So your functioning goes down because of the maladaptive anxiety. So it's an inappropriate response to a given stimulus and it results in avoidance, extreme distress, and disability. And this is really something that there's a continuum with this, of course. So I may not like public speaking, but maybe even though I have anxiety with it, I do it anyway, so do I have a specific phobia op- or public speaking? No, because it's not causing me avoidance, extreme distress or disability. In terms of the big picture for anxiety disorders, these are the anxiety disorders that are recognized in DSM-IV. Anxiety disorder due to a general medical condition. So this is someone that has has anxiety due to, say, hyperfibroism, for example, mm-hmm. substance-induced anxiety disorder. So someone that's using stimulants or other substances that can cause anxiety. Panic disorder with or without agoraphobia. Two to three percent of the population has panic disorder generalized anxiety disorders, 5%, social phobia, 3 to 5%, specific phobia, 25% of us. Post-traumatic stress disorder, approximately 1%. So this is just to give you a little bit of a flavor for the anxiety disorders that are recognized. Now in your rotation, you'll get more in-depth information about how to recognize and treat these, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of a flavor of what What's out there? Anxiety disorders are common and treatment responsive. But I'd like to talk a little (coughs) bit about panic attacks and panic disorder because they're common and that you'll see them on primary care. So panic disorder is a recurrent, unexpected panic attack. At least one of the panic attacks has been followed (coughs) by one month of worry about it. Significant change in behavior related to the attack. So you have a panic attack, you have many panic attacks, whatever the case is, but it starts to impair your function, and you become disabled because of it. What's a panic attack? Well, a panic attack is a discrete period of intense fear or discomfort, in which form or more of the following symptoms develop abruptly and reach peak within 10 minutes. Now A lot of people have had panic attacks (coughs) and don't have an anxiety disorder obviously. Um, Probably a lot of, of all of us have had a panic attack. Uh, So this is just a sudden onset of feeling, palpitations, sweating, trembling, shaking, shortness of breath, chest pain, nausea, dizzy, lightheaded or faint, derealization or depersonalization, so feeling Uh, a sense of unreality or like you're hearing or watching things from a third person fear of losing control oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I don't know what's going to happen fear of dying feeling like you're suffocating like you're going to die numbness or tingling sensations in your extremities chills or hot flashes Okay. so this is something that comes on, sometimes triggered by situations sometimes wakes you up in the middle of the night not triggered by anything Comes on fast, leaves fast, but leaves you with a sense of, God, that was really uncomfortable. And I don't want that to happen again. Because who you know, God only knows what I'll do if I have one of those while I'm in my knee, or if I'm taking my oral cord exam, or if I'm in the middle of a surgery, or what whatever. So someone comes in, complaining of these. If you have these symptoms, probably your first visit is it's your psychiatrist, right? It probably shouldn't be. Your first visit might be to emergency room saying, I'm short of breath. I'm having chest pain. My heart's racing. Okay. So a lot of people that have panic attacks get, a, get a quite a medical workout before it's realized that they have panic disorder. <coughs> same same theme here in terms of taking the history. And indeed, a lot of medical conditions can cause panic attacks. Too much caffeine will bring one on. Right? For some of us, hyperthyroidism can bring one on, pain can bring on panic attacks, hypoglycemia, angina. Lots of things can bring on a panic attack, including psychiatric illness. So sometimes people that are having clinical depression will have associated anxiety and panic attacks. Sometimes people have a primary anxiety disorder like a panic disorder, they have panic attacks, okay? So this is another one of those things where it's a common complaint comes in, you rule out medical etiologies, but also consider that this could be a primary panic disorder. Don't forget about the suicidality, depression, and substance abuse in people that have panic attacks anxiety symptoms. The good thing about panic attacks and panic disorders is that you get to be the hero. Here. They come on around the age that you're at now, in young adulthood, and people will come in very impaired because of their panic attack and panic disorder and they're worried that they're going, quote, crazy, unquote. Um, so maybe they had their first panic attack when they were in the grocery store line and they thought maybe it was because they were hungry because they went to the grocery store after work right before dinner. Maybe they have their second panic attack when they're getting the mail and so they think well maybe it's because I was stressed at that time or there was a lot of traffic that was at the mailbox when I maybe had it Needless to say they put them in the grocery store after work, they quit checking. The next one happens when they're giving a presentation, they get a presentation. I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack, but if you've had one, they're so uncomfortable that you want to avoid it at all costs. Experience that one. So people start doing less and less. Um, the radius of things that they do becomes smaller and smaller, for fear of having this panic attack. Um, so people come in with this and they've been ruled out for all kinds of medical conditions, And they, you can say, I think you have cancer, and you know, uh, it's very treatable, and you you get to be a hero because people respond nicely to this. Uh, So, anxiety disorders are commonly treatable. Look for medical etiologies. They can be classified. Remember that list of things. of the diagnosable anxiety disorders, that are classified by the clinical presentation. So, if you do a good history and physical exam, you'll be able to sort out which of those anxiety disorders the person is having. Anxiety attacks have an abrupt onset with characteristic somatic symptoms that peak rapidly. And also, moderate comorbid depression and substance abuse disorders in someone who has anxiety because. Um, one thing that keeps panic attacks from coming is alcohol. Okay. So people drink alcohol that works on the other receptors and they have panic attacks often. So easy for people to pick up a drinking problem if they're having a the panic attack and panic disorder. Okay. So I wanted to go through a few cases just to give you a feel for the a um, variety of types of chief complaints of anxiety that have come along and, and, and what kinds of uh, things you should be considering. Okay. Two days ago you admitted a 52 year old married gentleman for evaluation and treatment of kidney stones. The nurses call you to report that the patient is markedly anxious and irritable. No family history of anxiety problems, not taking medications that might provoke anxiety.
2: So, what are you going to do? She complained of hearing <laughs> anxiety. Try to find out if this happened before the hospital, is it? I'm going to get from the patient.
1: Okay, so you've got the nurse on, on the line and you say, All right, I'll be up, and then you go talk to the patient and see if he's ever had it. More collateral information. Let's say he says, I don't know. Who cares about that? Get out of my room. Mm-hmm. Of room. <coughs> help me, do something or get out here. Find someone that can't help me. What do you do next? Talk to his wife. Talk to his wife. She says, <coughs> I mean he's usually not like this. I and mean, you know he it has his moments, but what's the next arise? So find out when those symptoms arise A certain times of day or at during the time. Well, I was fine until I you know, I've got these kidney stones, and uh, here I am.
2: <sighs> what are you worried about?
1: What are worried about? That's a dumbass question. Just <laughs> tell me. <You're> right. <laughs> okay, boy. <laughs> no, so this is, this is the kind of thing where talking to the patient isn't getting very far. Okay, and the wife is like, oh, no. Think, what's your differential for anxiety? What kinds of things cause anxiety? Pain. There's a guy in here with kidney stones. He's in pain. Also, when the nurse calls you, anytime a nurse calls you, a good response is please check vital signs. Okay? I mean, not to be disrespectful or try to give out work to do for the nurses, but if someone is anxious and is in the hospital because of kidney stones, he could be in a lot of pain, and his blood pressure is going to be high. And his pulse is going to be high. He's anxious and he's irritable, and his respirators are fine, and his pulse is fine, and his blood pressure is fine. Well, then at least you don't have to worry about something that. What's another thing that could be happening for someone who has been in the hospital for two days and now is abruptly anxious? Yeah. Lack of sleep could do. Excuse me. Lack of sleep could do it. What else could do it? alcohol or drug withdrawal. He could be entering early DTs, okay? Especially if you get vital signs and his blood pressure's up and his pulse is up. He could be an alcoholic who is now 24-48 hours out with no alcohol and he's starting to withdraw. This happens quite a bit actually on the inpatient when they don't report that they use alcohol, and then they come in and they don't have alcohol for 48 hours, and they start acting funny. Okay, two complaints: anxiety. Let's go to the next case. A 34-year-old graduate student comes to your family practice office, describing a two-week duration of spells in which she can't breathe. those' feels all turned up inside and out of control. She's quit attending classes for fear she'll have another spell. What's your approach to evaluating this person? Last of a good um, example because we talked a lot about panic attacks and panic disorder. Um, the thing that I would mention about this, that's on differential diagnosis for a 34 year old graduate student who's in acute distress is always doing your own pregnancy test. Okay? Because sometimes that's the it's not the covert reason that they're in, but sometimes it's something that they're worried about or that they're about and not sure what's So I guess we have two minutes for questions.
2: For someone to be diagnosed
1: with anxiety, do they need to have panic attacks? Absolutely not. When we when we look at those like generalized anxiety disorder, don't have to have panic attacks to be diagnosed with that. There's very specific criteria for diagnosis of Post-traumatic stress disorder, like a post-traumatic stress disorder, hypervigilance, um, flashbacks, those kinds of things are how you diagnose that. Okay. Panic attacks, I just brought up and focused on a bit because it's so common that people are saying I'm having these spells, I'm having a, sometimes a panic attack to mm-hmm. be Well, thank you for your attention, and um,
2: and we'll see you next time.